going to dig into Psalm 55 tonight and here again we see a prayer a prayer that is uh, written by David who is in distress in distress in a in a pretty serious way and uh, it's an interesting thing because uh, that distress that he is experiencing is uh, it has come about in his life, um, certainly by hardship, but more specifically by um, the uh, by the work of or the unfaithfulness of those he has known, people who have been his companions, people who have uh, have walked with him and been a part of his life, and and so. That's a unique sense of trouble, isn't it? Um, I don't know if, you, uh, well, I, can, I, I would venture to say that most of us have experienced some level of betrayal in our life, right? And, and um, sometimes it's more serious than others, but the sting is, is always the same. Um, so here in Psalm 55, we've got the context of trouble and distress, crisis, betrayal, and pain, all kind of just mixed in together. And, and uh, David is crying out to the Lord. And I'd like for us to, uh, as, we, as we look at this, just before we get started, take a look at verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. Um, there, David writes, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. In other words, that's the place that he dwells. That's where he lives. Um, this place that he calls home, he has seen uh, violence and strife. And that, uh, again, it, it has to do with what's familiar to him. The strife that he's experiencing is in the context of what is familiar. Look at verse 12 and 13. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor it is one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Again, this is, um, this, um, Psalm is written um, out of a sense of pain and betrayal that happens, has happened with David in, in his relationship with those who he has called companions. And the, the idea of the companion there is not, uh, it, this is not a casual acquaintance. This is not like uh, those of us, many of us in this room, hey, we're, we're kind of casual acquaintances. We see each other uh, once or twice a week and we pat each other on the back and, and we, we encourage one another. But a companion is one who walks with in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the pursuit of, of the things of great value in a person's life. And, and this is, David finds himself in this place where he has felt he feels completely betrayed by these who have walked closely with him. Um, and in, in some respects, it's, uh, it causes me to wonder, who in the world is he talking about? It's interesting that um, it, it's not designated in this psalm, as, as we discovered last week, the, uh, the couple psalms that we looked at last week included specific references to a time in David's life. Not only a time, but a place and the, the people he was associated with. But here we find um, David uh, almost in a sense of mourning, and yet uh, we'll find out that it's, it, it, it is not a mourning that gives up. It is a mourning that turns into uh, the pursuit of God and his provision in the midst of that. Um, uh, again, who in the world is this? I, I can think of two instances, and there are more than that in David's life, but two that, that, um, 
that really stand out to me. Um, I'm wondering if you might be able to identify some of those people in David's life who, who betrayed him. And if, if you would, speak up and speak loudly so we can all hear. Saul. Saul. Yeah, King Saul uh, betrayed David in, in a very dramatic way. The, in, in truth, uh, he, Dave, he brought David into his household, even as a young man, and regarded him highly. And then as soon as he saw the hearts of the people being turned toward David, he turned on David himself. And um, who, who else in David's life? His, his oldest son, Absalom. Absalom, yes. In fact, I think this may indeed be one of the incidents that he is uh, writing about here. Um, we can dig into that a bit further. We see in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapters 15 through 18, the story of Absalom, his, his oldest son, who seeks to, uh, in many, I could, you, we could say, steal the throne away from his father. It's interesting that in, um, in these passages, uh, there in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, we read about the fact that Absalom stood at the city gate and he, he had the pretense of pronouncing judgment, on making decisions uh, concerning people who, who would bring a dilemma to him. Uh, maybe a, a conflict between two individuals or whatever, and he would he would pass judgment. That was a common thing at the city gate. We read about that often in the Old Testament, and Absalom sought to do that. But not only did he do that, he uh, he began to weave in to his testimony to those people um, a, a sense of distrust of his father David and the, the, uh, the, the ruling party, if you will. Verses three and four, uh, we read, then Ab Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. So we see here uh, Absalom is, is uh, beginning to, uh, he's got a conspiracy going. He's, he's stirring the pot. And we find out just a few verses later that Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. And, and uh, so here is David's oldest son who is stealing the affections of the people from David himself. Um, I think this very may well have been one, a, a, a good possibility of what, um, what David is dealing with, this disappointment of one that he's trusted. Um, who else? There are several other possibilities. Any other thoughts as to who this might be? It could be prophetic. To Judas. Okay, that's an interesting thought. I had not considered that. Um, that is a very interesting thought, that the, that the Lord might very well be also using this as a prophetic uh, voice. However, um, well, I, let's let that sog a little bit. That's a brand new idea to me. I, I, I don't know that it is commonly understood in that way, but that's a, a very, very insightful and, and curious thought. Anybody else? Any other conflict? Ahithophel, yeah, Ahithophel is, um, he actually was a counselor of David who sided with Absalom. He was the one who, who uh, counseled Absalom and helped, uh, helped gather um, 
gather the affections of the people to Absalom. Another, another person that is uh, in, the, in the scripture that sets himself up against David is Absalom's younger brother, um, Adonijah. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 1. At the end of, of 2 Samuel, we see uh, David nearing the end of his life. And in the first chapter of uh, 1 Kings, we read about how David has, is advanced in years. And um, it even speaks of the fact that, that as an elderly man, he was cold and, and how... Um, those who uh, are around him suggested that uh, maybe they should find a young woman to help um, uh, be next to him, to keep him warm. Um, curious idea there. There was, uh, the scripture is pretty clear in saying that he did not know, quote unquote, uh, did not have any kind of sexual involvement with this young woman, but that's a curious thought. But in his old age, his younger son, Adonijah, uh, begins to make moves toward taking over the throne. Uh, and it's very curious that, that he, uh, he enlists the help of a very significant person in David's life who has been with him throughout his uh, reign as king and before. Uh, all of his exploits were... were uh, shared with this man. Did anybody, anybody know who he is? He was the, you could call him the general. Joab, yes. Joab, a uh, very trusted uh, colleague of, of David. And, and Adonijah enlists Joab in his uh, pursuit to take the throne. Now, it's very interesting as well that prior to this, David had promised that the throne would go to who? His son, Solomon. Yes. And, and Adonijah probably knew that. So he was making his move before um, this, his yet younger brother uh, would be named king of Israel. First Kings chapter one, verses five through seven. Let me just read that for you. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. Now it's important to understand that Haggith is uh, one of David's wives, right? And so he, he is the son of David. And he says, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, what have you, why have you done so? Now, here we see David in his old age, not putting up a fight, perhaps. Um, and he was also very a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. So I think these are two very real possibilities. It's interesting here that in the text that we just read, David kind of gives up and says, I'm not even, even going to confront him on this. Um, We've, we discover there in 1 Kings, however, that Nathan, the prophet who spoke to David previously, uh, the context of Psalm 51 is around uh, Nathan's uh, confronting David about his uh, illicit affair with uh, Bathsheba. Nathan comes to Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba had become David's wife, right? Remember that? Um, and... and um, Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, um, something's going on with Adonijah. You need to know that. And David needs to know that. Because David has promised the throne to Solomon. And if this is going to get fixed, it needs to be fixed now. It needs to be taken care of quickly. And, and um, so we, we see that drama playing out as well. 
So uh, let's read. Let's uh, get into Psalm 55. Um, David writes, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and surely distracted because the voice of the enemy, the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. It's interesting, the, the word supplication here. Um, uh, used in verse one means to an entreaty for grace, an entreaty for favor. Um, David knows enough not to ask anything of God as if he deserves it. This, it, this supplication is coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I know this is a grace gift I'm asking for. I know that this is simply something that would be delivered simply out of your favor because I don't deserve this. Um, in verse 2, he says, answer me. Answer me, please. Now, I, I, some could read this as a demand. Answer me. But no, it's not a demand. It's a plea. Um, it's a plea for an answer. Asking that the Lord would pay attention and, and not only pay attention, but would respond. Um, it's, it's one thing to listen. It's another thing to respond. And that is what David is asking for. He's asking for a response. Answer me. Now, it's interesting how here he says, I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. And when I read that word distracted, I thought, wait a second. That doesn't belong here. Distracted? I'm surely distracted. Um, well, wait a second. Is there, what is he talking about here? I mean, we're distracted by a lot of things, right? You see a really great classic car on the street, and what are you going to do? You're going to go like that and risk getting into a wreck, right? You know, that, we're distracted by a lot of things. What's going on here? What does that word mean? Well, it's, it's really interesting to me that the word itself means to, to agitate and to agitate greatly, um, and it also includes the connotation to, to make a noise and to even ring again and again and again, to ring out, to make a noise. Um, and, and so what we hear is that David is being, he is, um, I'm, I'm restless, he says, and I'm agitated. Restless and agitated go together. Uh, and, and it's as if in this agitation, it's like a ringing bell that keeps on ringing over and over. He cannot get it out of his ear. Verse 3, he says, because of the voice of my enemy. Uh, be, excuse me. Because of the voice of the enemy. Do you see the difference there? It's not my enemy, it's the enemy. Because of the voice of the enemy, I'm agitated, I'm distressed, I'm stirred up. Um, I wonder, uh, in your life, do you experience the voice of the enemy dis bringing distress upon you? What does the scripture say about about the enemy, quote unquote, the enemy. He's a liar, right? And when we speak of the voice, like clearly this is the enemy speaking, right? And so what does the enemy speak? The enemy speaks lies. The yes, the father of lies. And so deceit is part of part of the package that's what the enemy does now not only is he is he um, 
beset by that, but he is, it's the pressure of the wicked, the pressure of the wicked. Um, sometimes we find ourselves in these places where we just feel like we cannot move. And it's as if there is a heavy weight upon us and we cannot get out from under it. And, and David is speaking here. This is what it feels like. I feel like I'm under pressure and it's the pressure of the wicked. And they bring down trouble. It's, that's just what the enemy does. He brings down trouble. We, we, we see the testimony of Job. <laughs> and what, is the, what does the enemy decide to do uh, with Job? He brings down trouble into his life, doesn't he? The Lord gives him permission to do that so that his righteousness might be displayed before men and even the enemy. He's a trophy of God's grace, according as, as Paul would speak of, of uh, us as believers. We are trophies of God's grace. And, and yet the bringing on of trouble perhaps is a part of the bringing up of the trophy. I don't know, perhaps. And then he, he says, and in anger, they bear a grudge against me. Ever had anybody bear a grudge against you? Yeah. Um, what a grudge would would be likened unto unforgiveness, right? Unforgiveness is part of that. Uh, getting even is part of that. As if as if my ill feelings toward you will make us even. Um, I, that idea of a grudge um, means to lurk, to lurk about uh, and persecute, as if to say um, they are standing at every corner looking for every opportunity to point fingers, to jab at me, to throw accusation. They are opposing me in and at every turn. So there we see, this is the crisis. These, these three verses are the crisis defined here in, in uh, this chapter of the, of the Psalms. Verses four and five, we see David's condition um, being described here. Verse four and five, my heart is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. And horror has overwhelmed me. Anguish and terror. Trembling and horror. Have you ever been so horrified that you tremble? That's a... That's... That's kind of a, um, what do you call that? An involuntary reaction to stress, if you will. That, that shaking, uncontrollable shaking out of fear. Um, I have uh, just very uh, I, random, very seldom, I, I would say maybe, I, I don't even know it's, if it's even once a year. It's probably not. But they're memorable. I have dreams every once in a while in which I am so fearful I cannot speak. And I moan and my wife wakes me up saying, what's wrong here? You're moaning here. All I know is that in my dream, I'm paralyzed with fear. And I think in some respect, this trembling, trembling isn't paralysis, is it? But it's, it's an uncontrolled response. It's an uncontrollable response to the horror that he feels, the terror, um, and the overwhelming. The overwhelm is, is um, a place that I think perhaps many people today experience oh, the overwhelm. Of, of just 
opposition at every turn. And there's a point at which uh, the responding to that becomes, um, you just, you get weary. You kind of wonder if I respond, will it matter at all? And some people give up. Some people even give up in the midst of that, that, that overwhelming feeling. I can't deal with this, God. I know that I, I would venture to say that there's a fair number of us in this room who have experienced that feeling of being completely overwhelmed. I cannot deal with this. Um, verses six through eight, we see the response to um, this crisis. And it's really interesting. It's a common response. We have, we have the fight or flight response, right? To crisis. Either, either we stand up and we fight or we run. We run at the top of our, at, at, at the top, at top speed trying to get away. And what we see here is David uh, with his flight response. That's perhaps maybe even his first response. And that leads me to believe that perhaps, maybe, maybe this was um, his response to the situation with Adonijah. We read earlier that he didn't even want to confront him. And maybe his first response was, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting out of here. I wish I could go. Look at, with, look at it with me, verse 6. And I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. Yeah. I would fly away. That flight response in the midst of crisis. I'm curious, what, what do we expect to find at the end of our flight? Peace? Okay, escape from a situation. Maybe there's, maybe there's peace to be found there. Maybe rest? Maybe rest, I don't know. Um, I, a hiding place, okay. Uh, it, uh, pursuing a place to hide from, from the, the terror, from, the, from this feeling of overwhelm. I, um, I think, however, that in this situation, David's wish to just flee is temptation. Because just to escape it all is a, a temptation and the expectation that rest and peace is kind of a vain idea because it's, he can't get escape. He can't escape this. This is something that is pressing in on him. Escape, I think, to, in some respect, rarely brings rest. Why would I say that? Absolutely. Wherever you go, your problems follow you. In other words, in other words escaping the situation does not resolve the situation. And... It, it, it may provide a temporary respite, but it does not solve the problem. And in this respect, I think um, this is a, a temptation for David in this moment. Verse 7, Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness um, to wander means to, in the Hebrew, to wave back and forth and almost has this idea of waving even like in the wind. Um, but it also, it also means to 
to depart, to flee. And in some respect, I think we could say also it means to surrender, to surrender to irresponsibility. Is that possible? To surrender to irresponsibility? Absolutely. I think it is absolutely possible. You can choose not to deal with the problem. And the problem persists and multiplies and ends up hurting more and more and more people. And sometimes we are tempted to, to run away and simply surrender to irresponsibility. You know what that looks like? It, it looks like... Um, um, well, perhaps weak. Yeah, you could say that. I was going to say it, 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 looks, it looks like um, diving into um, uh, just uh, a drunken state where I don't care. And does that solve the problem? No. It actually, in many respects, it multiplies the problem. Um, the wilderness throughout the scripture is often used as a, a place of refuge, a place of hiding. Um, it's also, it's very, very interesting that uh, the wilderness historically, when we think of the, the people of Israel and, and the travels with Moses, it, it's a place of wandering, isn't it? Um, if you ever look at a map on the, on, of where the children of Israel went through, how they, it, you know, their trip to the promised land really wasn't that long. But they wandered 40 years. <laughs> Granted, they got there first. They got there first and, and, and uh, decided not to go in because they were afraid. And then they wandered for 40 years. And, and that's part of the wilderness experience. Um, and David's thinking, hey, maybe that's what I should do. I should just go wander in the wilderness. Verse 8, and I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. That's a, that's a continuation of this thought. Um, we, we miss the word Selah, though. And what does Selah mean? It means rest or pause. And I'd like to think of it in this context of David saying, just sighing. It's a big exhale. You know, if I could just escape like a dove, I'd fly away and be at rest. I, I'd wander away far away and, and just wander in the wilderness. <sighs> and the thought continues even at the end of his exhale. Because he says in verse 8, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. He just wants out. But then in verse 9, something happens. Something happens. Maybe it's an aha moment. Maybe it's the Lord pricking David and saying, dude, you can't just give up. You can't just do that. 9 through 11, we see the fight response. First, we've seen the flight response to his crisis. Now we see the fight response. Read with me. Verse 9, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in their midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Confuse. Confuse, O oh Lord. Confuse their, their way of, of what they're doing. The word confuse means, means to make a path or make a way with. Specifically, um, in the context of <laughs> putting away or devouring or destroying, swallowing up. 
That, that word confuse means swallow up. Swallow them up, Lord. And then he adds to that, confuse, divide the message. Maybe he's saying devour the messenger. I, I, I think um, many times in, in the context of, of uh, misinformation and rumor and that kind of thing going on, um, it's an appropriate prayer to say, Lord, confuse that message so that it turns on itself and devours itself. Stop it. That's an appropriate prayer to pray. He says that there is uh, violence and strife in the city. This is the place where David dwells, the place he calls his home. And there is violence and strife. Now, violence, it, we kind of get the idea, violence and blood and punching and swords and sticks and all that stuff goes with violence. What goes with strife? What comes to your mind? Fear? Okay, that's interesting. Stress? Anxiety? Anything else goes with the word strife in your mind? Deceit. Deceit goes with strife. Confusion goes with strife. Strife in itself speaks of division right? It's one part pitting itself against another part. And that, that action itself is, is the, uh, the result of the, the evidence of division. And, and in many ways, um, David is saying, unity is done away with here. There is strife. There is division. And as a result, peace has been completely destroyed. That's what's going on in the place where he lives. Verse 10, the word mischief is using is, is used. Um, Day and night they go around upon her walls and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Iniquity, we know what that is, right? It's, it's sin, it's wrongdoing. But mischief is a curious word. Um, in fact, we even kind of romanticize the idea of mischief, don't we? Oh, that mischievous person. That little guy is so mischievous. Don't you just love him? I mean, that... It's, it, it's sneaky, yeah. It's, it's uh, filled with, with uh, all sorts of imaginary and imagination that is kind of twisted and gone awry. And it's really interesting, though. In the, in the Hebrew, the word mischief that's translated here means to toil with a wearing effect. Toil in such a way that you wear the thing out. It's worry, it's painful, and it's pervasive. And it's pervasive perversion, if you will. It's, it's, it's a perversion of the truth that, that just grinds on and on and it wears out. It's wearisome wickedness. That's what's going on. It just doesn't seem to end. Now, verse 11, destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Destruction is in her midst. So the word in what's that idea of in the midst mean? In the middle of, in the center of. Yes, indeed, it means it means the the nearest part. 
in the midst of oneself is in the heart of who they are, right? And, and David is, is saying that their destruction is inside. It's near. It's right here. And then he goes on to say that, it, that oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. In other words, that, that idea that, that um, it, it just persists. It's wearing itself out. Oh, we wish that it would. But it does not seem to end. It's just persistent. David is identifying this is the fight. This itself is the fight. The persistence of deceit, the persistence of of oppression, wearing out this wickedness, this perversion that just does not seem to end. This itself is the fight. And he needs to take the fight to that. Verses 12 through 15, he identifies the threat. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death and let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Not an enemy? He says, it's not an enemy who reproaches me. Really? Not an enemy? No, a friend. A friend who is deceived by the enemy. You see how easy it is for us to to begin to identify individuals whom we love and care for, who cause us distress, it's so easy to identify them as the enemy. But note and understand that David is not doing that. He's saying, no, this is a friend, a companion, one who's been close but they have been deceived by the enemy. Remember again in verse three, because of the voice of the enemy, he didn't say my enemy because of the voice of the enemy. He says, um, this friend has been, um, Deceived by the enemy and he reproaches me. This word reproach means to expose. To pull the cover off. To expose. To defame. It's interesting to me that. that um, we operate with this understanding that. Surely we should all know everything. We have a right to know everything. Especially if, it, if it's a matter that concerns us. We have, a re- we have a right to know all the details. Witness the Mueller report. Right? Gotta know the details. We have a right to know. And this word reproach that David uses here is stinging and hurtful and harmful, and it means to uncover. Some things don't need to be uncovered. 
nor is uh, nor one who hates me, he says, but a friend who is lured into opposition. He says he's exalted himself against me. He's exalted himself against me. Perhaps that we could tie that to the root pretty easily, couldn't we? Self gets in the way an awful lot of the time in terms of our relationships with one another. Verse 13, he's my equal, he's my companion, he's my familiar friend. And, and verse 14, not only is he those things, but we've had sweet fellowship. We've had sweet fellowship in the house of God. Wow. I don't know about you, but I hear stinging pain in those words. What divides friends? I would venture to say that what divides friends most often is misinformation that's not corrected. It's evidence of corruption. It's evidence of corruption. The truth that is tampered with, that ends up exposing morals that are less than what they should be. Note the word corruption means decay. It's rotting because of death or because of the environment that is, is, is out of balance. Something that is rotting in a, say, for instance, in a situation that's too wet and too hot. It just becomes putrid. It rots. That's what the word corruption means. Verse Verse 15, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. For evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. You see, death comes deceitfully. Deceit means to lend, to lend on interest. In the Hebrew context, that word means to lend with interest and then to extract the debt. Wow. Usury. That's the idea of deceitfulness. How many of you have entered into a loan that interest caught up to you way before you expected it? Some of you are wise enough not to get involved in that. Thank the Lord. The cost of being drawn in drawn in by misinformation is, is caught up in this word deceit. That is to let them bear the consequences. David is saying, let them bear the consequences of believing untruth, going down alive to Sheol, the place of the dead. The consequences of believing untruth is living death. It's misery. For or because evil is where they are living. Evil is now within them. That is, let them experience the consequence of their own deceit, is what David is saying. It's logical consequences. And logical consequences ideally lead to a change in behavior. David's prayer is not for, re for revenge but for, or judgment, but that the consequences of their deceit will come to rest upon them. Verse 16 and 17. We see personal resolve here, a response to the threats. As for me, I shall call upon the Lord and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will, com I will complain and murmur and he, he will hear my voice. As for me, it's a deliberate choice. It's not a reaction to the circumstances. It's a deliberate choice. As for me, this is what I will do. I will call upon the Lord and note he will turn to God, not to other means, 
of defense or self-preservation. And as a result, the Lord will save him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3 3, verse 8 declares that. And we also see that in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. Where the, the, the multitude of those who have been persecuted for their faith. Uh, the apostle John writes after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they were they cried out in a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb the one who sits on the throne that's who salvation belongs to. It's not to be extracted or to be, or, or to be owned by an individual. And David understands that. Verse 17, he speaks of his complaint. That means to ponder, to converse with himself. And to murmur. It means to, <laughs> it means to make a noise like, hmm, hmm. That's what David's talking about, evening and morning. In other words, all the time, I will, I will ponder. I'll converse with myself. Verse 18, and I will redeem, and he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are, two, for they are many who strive with me. The word redeem means to sever, to release and his soul, to release his soul. What is the soul? It's the mind, will, and the emotions. What has he been pouring out? His emotions, right? And he is saying this, um, uh, God, God will redeem his mind, will, and emotions in peace. He will release him from his anxiety and give his, his peace, give him peace and preserve his well-being. The word is shalom. It means well-being in and of itself. And, and that is the release or the redemption from the battle. The battle, which is against him. That no one may approach him. Note the battle is not identified, not identified with those in opposition to David. God will release the mind, the will, and emotion to be at peace, preserving my well-being, keeping me at a safe distance from the assault on my mind, will, and emotions. That's what David is, is praying for. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. Because there are many who strive against him, he says. God will hear and answer them. <laughs> God who has been sovereign and forever, verse 19. Verses 20 and 21, we see broken promises that lead to broken relationships fueled by passive aggression. Let's read it quickly. He has put forth his hand against me who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. And his words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. He's speaking of those who have come against him. Note the passive aggressive behavior. There's a hand raised against those who were once friends, even having made commitments or covenants with them. And the definition of passive behavior, passive aggressive behavior is, is right here in verse 21. And we see it as the vehicle of betrayal. Verse 22 and 23, David counsels himself in the midst of his personal conflicts. Verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But thou, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out the, half their days. But I, I will trust in you. 
Throw down your burden. Throw it down. That's what the word cast means. And throw it on God. Let it go. Be rid of it. That's what David is saying. I'm letting go of this burden. And I'm letting God deal with it. Giving such burdens to God opens possibilities of his miracle work to repair and restore, to resuscitate, to resurrect even broken relationships. Let me say that again. Giving such burdens to God opens the possibility of his miraculous work to repair, to restore, to resuscitate, to, to resurrect relationships that are broken. And he says he will sustain. He will sustain. That means to keep, to enable. Enable you to bear with. Um, I had a whole section here out of 2 Peter chapter 1. And I invite you to read it on your own. It's a study in and of itself. But the sustaining work of God is found, described there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, I invite you to, to go home and read it tonight. Because there, Peter says that God in his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's God's sustaining power. And then he goes on and describes how that works practically in our lives. And it's a great, great study in how God will indeed sustain us. Um, I wish we had time to dig into that, but we don't. But you, oh God, You'll bring them down to the pit of destruction. He ends the psalm with this verse. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I, I will trust in you. Judgment rests with the Lord. Men in, of bloodshed and deceit is a simple statement of fact and consequences. These are David's former companions. Consequences are meant Ideally to restore rightful relationship. But sometimes they simply end in heartache. But David says, I will trust in you. It's the final statement. I will fix my eyes on you, God, and not on the restless and driven and distraction in verse two. I will I, and not be pressured by the other's feelings toward me in verse 3. I will not be overwhelmed by my anguish in verses 4 and 5. I will not flee to escape from the storm in verses 6 and 8 through 8. I will call upon the Lord to save me all day long, verses 16 and 17. I will trust your promise of peace, verse 18. I will cast my burden on the Lord, verse 22. I will live out my faith that he has given me and all I need for life and godliness, verse 22. I will trust God to keep me steady. Again, verse 22 and verse 23. I will trust you, O God. If that's not a pep talk, I don't know what is. That's David's heart being poured out in all honesty and his return to his absolute trust in God to manage these unmanageable circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and the fact that it is multiplied over and over in our lives. We thank you for this lesson tonight, that even in the midst of betrayal, even in the midst of deceit, Lord, you are faithful to set right that which is wrong. You are able to bring life even out of death. You are able, Lord, to sustain us, sustain us. Give us all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, that's our desire, that we would not be, be drawn away and distracted by, by 
many things that we can't control. Rather, we pray, Lord, that you would help us stay steadfast in fixing our eyes upon you. We thank you, Lord, that that's not only up to us. It's not just our discipline because you come alongside of us. You've provided all that is necessary for life and godliness. And we thank you, Lord, that we can count upon your partnership to enable us to fix our gaze upon you. And it's in your precious name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.